This week on Invasion of the Podcast, it's the year of the knockoff. We're going to see if we can escape New York and get away from some of those Bronx warriors. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a spaceship. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. People of the river. It's the invasion of the podcast. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? And welcome to Invasion of the Podcast, where we try to take over the world one listener at a time. I am Paul Fingerknives, Stedman, and to my left is Steve uh, whip that might be hiding by his ass, King. <laughs> That's not a whip. I, <laughs> I, no, I, let me refer, Steve elbow spike, King. There you go. That's All better. All my shoes have knives tipped. <laughs> and Fred Roller Skate Williamson. That no, he's not here. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, we're going to be talking about you're the knockoff with Escape from New York from 1981 and 1982's 1990, The Bronx Warriors. A little confusing. But uh, both of them are supposed to be set in the far-off future of the 90s. We'll talk about that. Uh, Some fun conversation, I am sure, about one of my all-time favorite movies and then 1990, The Bronx Warriors. Uh, (laughs) Not the other way around. (laughs) No, I mean, like, it has its merits. Let's just put it that way, but we'll get there. But first, uh, we were off last week because I was being lazy. Now, uh, Steve had to prepare to go to do a con. So tell us how that went. Yeah, so I uh, I went to Scarefest in Lexington, Kentucky. I was there for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, my partner in crime on the Saturday night slash rank, Sandy, could not make it, so I was uh, going solo. And uh, um, <laughs> admittedly, like in your head, um, when you hear a five-hour drive, you're like, ah, that's not a problem. But I think, <laughs> I think I'm getting to the point now where I'm like, oh, yeah, five hours in the car is a little bit more than I am willing to do at this point but like i I did okay it was fine but uh yeah it was it was a um good show sold uh more copies of the saturday night slasher than i have at a comic book convention which has led me to believe that maybe horror conventions are probably where i should start uh getting tables at as opposed to comic book conventions well that also feels like that might be the more approachable venue because the media that you're offering is not the typical media that you'd find at a horror convention so there might be some like a little bit not a spotlight but like hey i don't i this is something different at the table versus you know bootleg copies of like you know the baby sealer killers volume seven or whatever you know (laughs) i don't know it's probably a real movie i don't know like uh (laughs) what was it um what was the one with the drill what was it called uh slumber the slumber party slaughter that's not it um slumber party massacre that's it yeah that's it seven probably not seven But uh, it, I will say that it was uh, the Artist Alley portion that I was in uh, was probably one of the more stronger Artist Alleys that I've been in. Um, and everybody s- seemed to have a little bit something different. Like um, to my left, there was a girl who was selling jewelry made out of bones. Um, like she does the whole like, and I don't know too much about it other than an episode of the show Oddities that I watched once. But like she has the whole like flesh eating beetle that will take the flesh off of a uh, off of bone. Um, she basically collects roadkill and has some other like connections with like I don't know if it's animal like 
research. I don't know where she gets it, but she made a point of like saying that like she does not kill them herself and that they're not. No, like, she has she has it. a roommate and she goes to like you know the free cat day at the no. no. Like, but it was like it, it's like which one do you want to adopt? How how, <laughs> how many can I take with me? It's like are you going to give them a good home? Well, for a little bit. No, like she had like a, a you know like snake uh, heads and things like that that you know bones that were made into jewelry. Basically, I'm spending far too much time on her on this, but like, yes, like that was interesting. She was off to my left. On the right, there was a um, some gentleman who did customized figures um, out of bones. Out of, no, <laughs> across from me was a gentleman who does a uh, RPG game, uh, and it was actually really interesting. Um, it was a haunted house game. And what was interesting about it was was that um, listening to his pitch a few times, he'd mentioned that like you know whenever you're playing a game with people, if you're out early, like you're kind of stuck because everybody else is still playing the game and you're just yeah. you know stuck there looking at your phone or whatever. But he's like, in this game, if you die, he's like, you then become a ghost and you're still playing the game and your job is now to haunt the people who are still alive in the game. Hmm. Um, and uh, that was really interesting. So. There were a lot of different flavors, whereas like a comic book convention now is just ninety five percent people with fan art prints or mystery boxes or mystery boxes of fan art. No, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, there was some of that there. Don't get me wrong. Even I had like sketch cards and stuff like that of you know different monsters and stuff. But um, it it was a a very strong artist alley. Um, well, and I, and I saw your table set up that you did a video of and. I, you know, there, there was a lot to look at and a lot of different things. So it yeah. wasn't just like you, you talk about, uh, like the artist alleys and like, you know, comic book conventions. You're right. It's just, it's just these fan art and then like mashups that don't make any sense. And it's just all about trying to catch your eye. So you'll buy three prints for $20. Right. So with yours, like you had your book, you had, um, uh, some stickers, you had some other stuff going on too, some buttons. Like it was, it was a good setup and it's not your typical thing that I would see at, I've only been to one horror convention. I've been to it multiple times, but that's not the typical <laughs> setup I see right. at, at the one I go to. And uh, you know, there there was some um, there, there was some some nice connections made at the, sh the convention. Like for instance, uh, there was another comic book artist there, um, and what was interesting was is he came up to me uh, on Saturday. And he's like, "Hey, I saw your banner." I'm over on the other side, but I had to come over and find out what the Siren Slasher is. I'm like, oh, yeah. So I give him the pitch. He's like, okay, I'm going to buy a copy. And I'm like, well, I'll go, you know, I'll find your table when I get a chance because being the only one at my table, I couldn't really <laughs> leave my table very often. Yeah. Um, but I left, and it turns out that um, this gentleman was actually, he's a professional. He uh, um, is the colorist for Jim Food. I don't know if you know who he is. He does. No. Um, comic called girl scouts for image um he did a miami vice comic which is interesting cool. um the first thing that i ever noticed his art on was um generation x did a like uh an indie style version of for one issue it was in black and white and he was the artist on that but this gentleman is his colorist and um had a great conversation with him just about horror conventions versus comic conventions and wizard world and things like that um and he was a really nice guy. Um, following him now on Facebook, he he goes by uh, I believe Justin three thousand. Um, but he had some really cool artwork, and I bought some books from him. And then uh, on Sunday, uh, I was at the point where I was like, well, you know what? It, it was kind of slowing down, and I was like, 
I haven't gotten a chance to walk the convention that much, so I'm going to just put a table, put a sign on my table that says, you know, be back soon, and I'm going to walk around. I thought you were going to leave, like, the, the Dante sign, like, of, like, <laughs> you know, just just leave the, the change, be, like, <laughs> honor system. No, I, uh, I the, the girl next to my table, she's like, I'll keep an eye on it, you know, if anybody wants something, she's like, I, you'll just, I'll give you the money when you come back. I'm like, all right. But uh, you come back, that table just gone. Like she's, it's a, it's like a dust swirl. Like you're like, what happened? It's like she was never really there, Steve. Yeah, sorry. But uh, so I got up to walk around, and uh, as I'm walking by, uh, I see that Kane Hodder only has one person in his line. Now, I have two things that I would have liked to have gotten signed by Kane Hodder. I did not bring either of them simply because of the fact that I didn't think I'd get a chance to get in his line, or it would be too long. That's fair. Um, but long story short, I got to meet him. Very nice gentleman. Um, shook my hand, gave him a copy of the Saturday Night Slasher, and uh, on my way I went. But uh, overall, very good weekend. I would have liked to have had a little bit more time to relax because the convention on Saturday went from ten in the morning till nine o'clock at night. Wow, that's a long day. And yeah. uh, being at a table by yourself for that long, really, all I wanted to do was. Uh, go and eat something and go to bed. So <laughs> I went to the hotel bar, had some loaded tots and a couple of beers, and I just went back to my hotel room and passed out. Wow. So. Well, I saw that you had some celebrities reading your book, too. I saw uh, we had Ghostface, uh, Freddy Krueger, and uh, Michael Myers. Yeah, they were to be, all big yeah. fans. That's, uh, yeah. They were all speechless, too. It was really <laughs> yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, a lot of great cosplay at the show, too. Um, just all kinds of cool like uh horror costumes and then uh there's a guy and i regret not getting a photo of him but there was a guy dressed as a uh, count chocula there and it was a very impressive costume because he was nice. like on stilts and like had like extensions for his hands and it was, it was very cool stuff see i would i if there was a yummy mummy just walking around separate from him like that had been like great or a fruit brute just <laughs> just something like you wouldn't expect it you know like uh yeah that's cool that's really cool sounds like you had a good a good long busy weekend though so. yeah yeah i mean uh i got home 10 30 or 11 i think it was like 10 30 on sunday and i'd been gone since eight in the morning friday oh wow so yeah it was like having a weekend uh, off, but also it was like uh, just going to a different job on a weekend, <laughs> so I didn't feel very rested after it. But uh, yeah. it's a great convention, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, expanding. I, I may uh, consider uh, looking into like Horror Hound, which is the big one in Cincinnati, um, possibly um, giving another go at some of the shows around here, like uh, see if I can get into a cinema wasteland, even though I'm not technically you know, a movie-based uh, <laughs> table. I'm going to try and get in there because I think that the crowd there would probably dig our stuff, so. Yeah, and I see other, I see crafty things there too, so who knows. But, uh, but yeah, it's good. I'm glad that you had a good weekend. Uh, so, yeah, that uh, good, good reason to not have a show last week was for you to get ready to have, you know, that weekend. And yeah. I... I, you know, I didn't do anything that night. So that was perfectly good for me. Like, I, I feel like I should have an excuse. I'm like, you know, I was just in my, I was doing science. Like, like while you're gone, working on science. I, I will made say. made some advances in science things. Can't talk about it right now, but it's pretty important science. So I will say that Sunday I had the best start of any convention ever. There was a gentleman who bought a comic on Saturday, came and found me. He was wearing my pin. I survived the Saturday Night Slasher pin. Uh, he's like, I read it last night, and I read it again this morning. I just want to tell you how much I loved it. And I was like, 
I need like a thousand of you just out there like spreading the gospel. But thank you very much, very much appreciated. Um, but I, I was really touched that he like took his time out of his day to come find me again and say, "Hey, I really enjoyed your nice. product." And you know, the He's message. Like, this of- is not my blueprint. Just I just want to <laughs> let you know. No. <laughs> Well, no, I just want to like, you know, say too, you know, if you know somebody who's either doing something that uh, you want to support them, like, you know, finding a way, like just telling other people about it is, you know, what, like even the show, like just telling people that like, hey, I listen to this podcast, you may enjoy it. Or I like this comic, I like this movie, you know, anything mm-hmm. that you can do to like, it always helps the people creating things, you know, word of mouth, I think is still the best advertising that can be out there. So make sure that, you know, in an age of like people complaining on the internet all the time, you know, make sure that you get out there and support the stuff you love. And at least even if you can't do it financially, just telling people like, Hey, this is a really cool thing always helps. Yeah. Perfect. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's Steve surviving the, the, the horror convention. And, uh, but yeah, enough, enough, enough about surviving. Let's just get into some, uh, post-apocalyptic, 90s survival uh, we'll, we'll get right into our, our talk uh, about uh, 1981's Escape from New York and 1982's Bronx Warriors and now for our feature presentation I said Bronx Warriors like question mark like I don't like <laughs> is, is that a base of balls team I don't know but uh, yeah so uh, you had mentioned before story recording that you, you wanted to talk a little bit about like you know what we liked about like John Carpenter who's the director um, and, and co-writer of Escape from New York um, you, you said you wanted to maybe talk a little bit about uh, did you say you want to put this film in like your pantheon of Carpenter or yeah wanna, like okay. where, where do you where does it stack up for you like yeah you know. uh, that's tough because it's like I, this it's a good movie and I, that's not tipping my hand I, I, I was, it was occurring to me after having watched it again uh, the other night to get ready for the show and then I was listening to the soundtrack while I was at work today that I I, I realized how much Carpenter had shaped my young movie watching experience mm-hmm. And I think he was one of the first um, people that I was able to identify by a font on a screen. Like, yeah. he's, he always usually started the films with the black, the black screen and the white, like John Carpenter's, you know, I don't know, like whatever movie you want to put in there. John Carpenter's Vampires. John Carpenter's Vampires. I was, I was just going to make up a name of a movie, but yeah, that's sure. Uh, you know, John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. So, um, but even, even something like Christine, which is like, you know, that was kind of his like, you know, work for hire because you know he there was the the financial failure uh, failure of the thing. He just picked up that one to work on it. It was still John Carpenter's Christine, like mm-hmm. that. And so something about that, I think I was able to identify and recognize that the, this is a guy I liked, and these are the movies I wanted to watch. So um, yeah, like I I love Escape from New York. I um, it I think you know, we talked about when we talked about the Terminator, how I feel like some of the some of the edges on that film were starting to show a little bit. This one's even earlier, um, but and I feel like they're really it doesn't it doesn't it's not the same story, so it doesn't have the same it doesn't have the same uh, hurdles to clear. But uh, there are some analog things that go on in this movie that wouldn't be done today because you could just use computers that I feel make the movie age pretty well. Okay. So uh, and then there's other points too, like with the glider falling off the edge of the building. Maybe not so much, but whatever. <laughs> like it, it is what it is. But I love this movie. But the thing is always going to be in my top three. Like mm-hmm. I, I love the thing, which was the movie he made after this one. Um, and, and in terms of Carpenter, Christine is up there. I just, 
I, there's a lot, I know people I don't really care for that movie. I don't understand why. I think that's a perfectly great movie. Like which, which uh, Christine. Oh, Christine. Okay. Yeah. Um, like he even Carpenter was like, how do you make a car scary? But he found a way to make a car scary. You know, like yeah. just uh, and. I, there's this that that whack there of like the early to to uh, mid '80s of you know, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I'm trying to think of what else was in there too. Starman, like those are all like it's it's just a matter of just how I feel during a given day of the week. I think that I kind of slot them all probably a little differently. I, um, and, and we always I always forget about Halloween. You know, that's right. like, the, like you know, uh, especially <laughs> with you sitting beside me every week. I shouldn't forget that Carpenter <laughs> did that. And I and I actively don't. But uh, when I think of Carpenter, I think of '80s Carpenter. And I know yeah. Halloween Two came out. Um, when did Halloween Two come out? Hall- Halloween or Halloween, Halloween Two? Halloween Two, I believe, is '81. Okay, so. Yeah, but he directed that one. He didn't actually. Or I'm sorry, he wrote that one. Didn't direct okay. It. There you yeah. go. So, so yeah. So, um, same question for you, Steve. Where would you Where would you put this? So that was actually the thing that I was kind of grappling with as I rewatched it Monday night. Um, was I, I? I wouldn't say that like this movie f- slid down for me, but I just kind of realized that um, I have other movies that I put ahead of it, and I always thought that this was higher than I originally thought. Hmm. Um, so yes, Halloween is my number one favorite horror movie. It's my number one Carpenter. But then, you know, I would say probably my number two is is They Live. And that's partially because it was the first Carpenter movie I think I saw in the theater. And um, I would not seen a movie like that before. Okay. Um, and I still love so much about that movie. Um, it's it's a great movie. It's just and and people can throw a bag of hot rocks at me for saying this. Once Carpenter got out of the the studio system, and rightfully so, he got kind of burned with that. And I, it might be a budget thing, or it might just be just his own like the way he wanted to do things. I feel like they live. It, it's an awkward film at times, and I just I don't know if it's because of Roddy Piper playing you know um, Nada. Like he's fine, but I just don't. It's just something that. There's parts of that movie that don't quite work for me, but there's parts that are absolutely unique that okay. I that I dig, and I think I can always find something that's distinctly Carpenter in each of these films that I like a lot. Yeah, and again, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, this is some sort of like definitive ranking no. or like you know I'm trying to creatively critique them, and I'm just saying that like for me personally, I think that that's the movie that I enjoy the most watching right after Halloween, um, and then you know you've got the thing, um, you've got Big Trouble in Little China. Um, Starman, uh, and then I realized that I just, um, in the last year, finally saw In the Mouth of Madness, because for 20 years I had just been told that it was a terrible movie, or I had someone tell me that and it just stuck in my head, so I never got around to seeing it. And well, it's, then, it's not a bad movie, it's another one of those ones I feel like there's there's something that's incomplete in portions of that film, but there's so much that I feel works with Sam, Sam Neill. And there's some crazy great ideas in that film. I just, it just doesn't, it doesn't go a to B for me. You know? See, and I watched it and I was just blown away. I fell in love with it. Well, so like, I actually, I guess I'm the person that's maybe I'm not watching these movies all the way no, through. No, that's fine. Maybe, maybe I'm just getting 15 <laughs> minutes in and being like, I've seen it and I stopped watching and it. I don't know. The fact that I went in with such a low expectation watching it might've also affected me, you know? And, and to be fair, when I first saw it, I don't know if I was ready for that. That type of uh, storytelling mm-hmm. when I was younger, like because it, it goes very meta and very all over the place. So maybe that's where it didn't land for me well to begin with because it wasn't a clear cut narrative. Sure. Um, I mean, I did see it again, you know, a little later, um, and there's parts I liked about it, but maybe that initial 
uh, confusion as being like, you know, I don't know. I, I was a te- like a younger teenager when I saw it. And, you know, that movie does go places that, you know, you got to kind of think about. So, yeah, to be and, fair. Uh, I, there was a lot to love in that movie. And uh, Scream Factory just recently put out an edition of that that's wonderful. So, if anybody out there is looking to pick that movie up, I would definitely recommend that, well, the Scream uh, Factory edition. What do you think of Prince of Darkness? That's the next one I was going to get to. Okay. Was well, there you go. That Perfect. was another one that I hadn't seen uh, until the last couple of years. For whatever reason, it just escaped me. And... I love that movie as well. Um, That's another one I think that has good moments, but it's kind of there's some stuff lacking in it. It's just such a bizarre. Uh, I don't even know how to put it. Like it's a it's Donald Pleasance, so like yeah, it already gets a check mark in my book because I love anything <laughs> that Donald Pleasance is in, even Puma Man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Puma Man, yeah, but uh, um. I watched it and I was like, I, I don't know why I had never seen it before. Uh, being a horror fan, being a Carpenter fan, it just had escaped me for some reason. And uh, I sat down to watch it with like very little expectations. And again, it was one of those things where I was like, God, I think that movie, though, is more of a vibe than anything. That, that, no, I'll agree. There, there's definitely like a permanent like permanence through it all that's very off-putting and, and unwelcome. Uh, and in the last few minutes of that movie, with like it, 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 it hints at this like this like future, you yeah. know. But the using of a VHS, like the kind of slip tracking and just that un, un uh, indeterminate image and, and like the sounds mm-hmm. is very haunting. Yeah. Like that, that's the stuff of nightmares to me. Like that whole like you're getting transmissions from some place that you don't quite know. The audio's go, you know kind of jumbled and you're seeing something you don't know what it is. That will always bother me, you know. So yeah, there. Again, there's elements I could pull from all Carpenter that I dig, um, yeah. and I also like that like he doesn't always take places, take things places you think it's going to go, you know. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I, I you know, Escape from New York maybe maybe because it's it's you know a relatively polished and finished idea with the exception of budget, maybe you know maybe the other times where he kind of goes a little bit more challenging himself in terms of like just concept and story. I don't know. Well, like, it, it's funny because I, I the reason I bring it up is is that you know after watching it I kind of realized that it was falling, and not I mean these are all all great movies that we just discussed, but I realized that for me Escape from New York was falling towards the latter half of his filmography. Um, as long as you put it above Escape from L.A. That's, yes, <laughs> well that and like I've even put it above The Fog, which uh, The Fog I think has got some really cool stuff in it, but I just overall I. I it doesn't work for me as well as some of his other films, um, but when it comes down to it, is is that like I was always under the impression that Escape from New York was probably in my top five, and I'm realizing it's now probably at the top half of his second portion well, of his filmography. We'll put it, that and, if, and if that's and if that's where it lands, because you feel like there's so much other good stuff in front of it, yeah, it's that not, shouldn't take away from that. And I think that's yeah. your point. Yeah, so yeah, I that I guess that's fair. It's just I. And for reasons we'll get into, there's so much of this movie that works that that is very much Carpenter, and I think has aged well because it's dealing with the near future, even though we're years past it. Yeah. Um. I I think some of it kind of is like you know you it just it kind of exists in its own time and space that it doesn't it kind of defies aging a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it it holds up in a lot of ways. Um. And even, but again, my, my, my pinnacle movie for Carpenter is the thing 
I, I can't find a thing wrong with that movie. Maybe no because I love intended. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe because I love it too much, mm-hmm. but I feel like that was him at like just full force. I can do this. And then when that movie didn't do so well and the studios weren't giving him the, the ability to do what he wanted to do, it's a shame because like I think Escape from New York being a $7 million budget, which was his highest budget at the time to work with, at, you know, and what he did with that is amazing. Oh yeah, you there's know, like, great stuff yeah. in the movie. Don't get me wrong. I just yeah, it was just sort of a realization for me as I was watching it, and you know, I, I think that uh, you know there aren't very many directors that I can think of off the top of my head that like have that kind of effect. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you're Spielberg. Sure, I was gonna say like, how you do you know? how do you rate Spielberg? Like, it's hard to do that, yeah. right? So yeah, um, so it's it's a definite like singular class that or not singular, but a, a very. Um, small class that he's in you know there aren't a lot of directors that you can do that with where you know most of their filmography you end up loving for one reason or another and then find out that something you thought that you loved kind of slid backwards but because you discover either other work or you know um other elements kind of came to the forefront for you later in life you know yeah that's fair i think that's a fair statement so let's yeah let's get into it in full in terms of uh escape from new york like i said 1981 uh directed by john carpenter written by john carpenter and uh michael myers i mean nick castle um premise is in 1988 uh the borough of manhattan crime had went up by 400 percent and then in 19 uh what was it um i have it written here in my notes because i love the whole thing it says here 1988 crime rate rises 400%. A wall is built around Manhattan Island. The rules are simple. Once you go in, you never go out. Uh, and then it, then it goes to 1997 now. Like, so, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, you know, the premise is that, uh, and, I, and I like, this is what I wanted to kind of like get into. And I didn't get a chance to really dig into the history of time and place for New York at the time Carpenter was thinking about writing this movie. Cause he, this was a lot of this was also a response to him. Um, after Watergate, he kind of felt like kind of negative towards the government and kind of, you know, was thinking about some things. And, and let's be honest, the late seventies weren't exactly the best financial times for the country. So it was kind of, you know, we kind of had a black eye with the Nixon presidency and New York, um, especially like Times Square, all this was really seedy, like, yeah. like, um, you know, the birthplace of Daredevil, like really, you know, really, 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 I know Hell's Kitchen, but whatever. But like every time you see any movie from the seventies and early eighties through New York, it's like porn theaters. It is just, it's, it's not a safe place to be. It's it, Taxi Driver. If you've yeah. ever seen the movie Taxi Driver. And it it's... never, it, you got the feeling that it was never going to get any better. Like it right. was only going to get worse. So you kind of culminate those, like that vibe and that feel. And that's like, well, what would New York be like 20 years from now? Like, you know, and it's like, yeah. well, it'd be such a problem. Let's just put a wall in it and throw all the people in it. And it's like, it, it's, it's sci-fi and it's, you know, post-apocalyptic kind of. Um, but it's also like, you know, the natural extension of what the fears and the reality was of the time in which this was made. Cause it did as much as it'd be like, they'd never built a wall around Manhattan. That's silly. It's like, yeah, but do you want to go to Manhattan right now? Oh no, no, that place is scary. Like it wouldn't be that far off. Well, I would say a lot of the entertainment that came out of the eighties, um, was sort of looking for a logical extension of where they were. How do I put this? So like, for instance, um, you know, you've got Blade Runner, which is sort of this, um, this, this future that is not apocalyptic, but it's, it's definitely a darker version of the future. Yeah. You've got, uh, Frank Miller writing Dark Knight Returns, which is almost a very similar, Gotham at that point is almost like a, a very similar to, um, 
New York is um, at that time in the comic. Well, um, and, and Watchmen came out in the 80s, too. Yeah, right? Watchmen. So, yeah. Um, so, like, you had a lot of stories telling these sort of dark future, I guess is maybe mm-hmm. the best way of putting it, um, and just sort of expanding upon, like, that gritty, ugly, um, crime-ridden slash... Well, because you could argue that the optimism of the 60s and then the excess of the 70s, this was the hangover, right? And like it was just, you know, and they were growing up and there was responsibilities and and, and shit was wrong. And so you get like, you know, what would it be like? And so now we look back on, you know, the future year of 1997 and, and the idea of being like so fed up with something that the military state that is the government that we don't really get much knowledge of other than like, it's like the United States police force or something to that effect. So you get the feeling that like some, some major paradigm shifts in the way America functions went between, you know, 1988 and 1997 and the future of escape from New York. So you get like, you know, you know, something happened there. It's very, very authoritative. Right. And that their solution was we'll build a wall and throw all the bad people behind the wall. It's hard to watch this now with the notion of what, the, the reality of the current political state is with our country. I like, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and well, the United States police force is coming for me right now. That's <laughs> what's going on. Um, so it, it's one of those things that even though that was like, you know, Oh, this is, this, this, it's the future. Oh, this will never happen. And it's like, and you know, not what it is, what it is. We, there's someone who was elected by, by actively saying they were going to build a wall, Correct. you know, and, and they want more enforcement of certain type of practices. Right. So, it's it's eerie how like as far away as we are from 1981 and how far we are away from future 1997 as opposed to the movie to where we are now it's 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 interesting to watch this film the further we go along through the lens in which it was made and the reality it was trying to present as its as its future you know so I, I wanted to think about that. I wanted to think about New York not being like the safe haven or not that New York is like a perfect place now, but there's been a lot of cleanup in a lot of areas yeah. to my knowledge. I mean, there's an M&M store there now. So I, you know, like has to be okay. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, you got that, that, that context and then you have, uh, the character. So the, the premise, if you guys have not seen escape from New York, like it, so the, the Manhattan's walled up presidents flying overhead terrorists bring his plane down into a building in, in Manhattan, which is still also unsettling. Well, let's not forget that snake lands on top of the world, the world trade, trade center. center. Yeah. Like, come on. Like I, I can't think of anything more. Like I still kind of like, we actually just passed another anniversary for 9-11, and I still, to this point, like, even if somebody's just talking in generalities, like, if I hear 9-11, I get uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable, like, oh, don't like, talk about it. Like, how dare you? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, just, I, you remember that day. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, just the fact that he lands on top of the World Trade Center is just one of those things that's, like, it's it's a very, like, uncomfortable, like, reality because it's like that those towers are no longer standing yeah um, but then the president crashes into a like a building like right his plane does and he has his escape egg that falls which to the bottom. i was just going to mention because you mentioned the as like they stole that from work from work apparently <laughs> or Mork and mindy yeah. he, jonathan winters is coming out of it it's uh, great no. because uh donald pleasant's getting his egg gets in his egg and says nanu nanu yeah right, right. before uh, he shoots out of the plane <laughs> he does uh and so what happens then is there's a there's a parallel situation involving where there uh, people are being admitted to um you know the new york whatever manhattan prison where uh there's a gentleman snake pliskin who was a war hero but is now a criminal and he's being processed in 
and um, someone there is his name, uh, Hauk, which is um, uh, I should know this guy's name because I, I love him now. Lee Van Cleef, okay. he's my new hero. Lee Van Cleef is Hauk, recognizes that uh, Snake, he knows who Snake is, he knows the, the problem of the president being in the island, and he's like, I'll give you an ultimatum. You get in there, get the president and his briefcase, and I'll pardon you. And he's like, but you have 24 hours. And it's like, that's such a great, like, cause you, everything you hear about snake is like, he, he did fight for the country. You don't ever really know his reasons for walking away, Yeah, but you get like, just from the way he carries himself, he's, a, he doesn't say much. He doesn't give a shit. Like he does not, he doesn't care about anybody and doesn't want to be there and doesn't, and he's not a hero, not anymore. You know? Right. And, but he's being forced now, like with the possibility of pardon, but then also they put these uh, detonation cores in his neck and they, they say they will go off in 22 hours. If you don't cut, get the president, we will, de- we will not deactivate them. So it's a really, really good setup of like, you got the sci-fi premise already, which is kind of, you know, like it's, it's an interesting thing to explore. And then you have a ticking clock scenario put on top of it with the hero who, who is your main character who is not a hero. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's such a good setup for a film, uh, and then you got Kurt Russell, who at that time he was known for his Disney fare and being more of an approachable, likable guy, and he wanted to play a character that was really against type, and so he he got to do this and basically plays as Clint Eastwood. Yeah, and after hearing like reading about that and watching his performance, it is so Clint Eastwood. Like it's great, and like. I just I don't know. I, I liked his performance in this. Obviously, we know him as Snake. We know him as capable of, of doing these dark, dramatic turns. But at the time, that would be like um, I don't know. I'm trying to think who we would think of now. Who was like you know upbeat, happy guy that would suddenly take like a dark, you know, action hero turn. Like oh, I didn't know this person was capable of that. I don't know who that would be. I mean, if you were to like jump out of time and be like, here's Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure with Keanu Reeves. And then be like, here's a copy of John Wick. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's not bad. You're right. That'd be like, yeah, yeah I, or I agree. Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura, and then a copy of like, while it's not an action film, Eternal Sunshine, where it's a very serious, dramatic role, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, like, but you got you got Snake, who as a character, you learn you learn about him from people's reactions to him because he doesn't tell you anything you know right. like like uh, it, like every single person tells him like not every single one it's like i thought you were dead like the, like the, the 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 legend of snake plissken is bigger than snake plissken yes you know and and then like hawk knows him from like a couple from world war three i get I don't know if they say that in the movie but in the novelization it's implied that the leningrad mission that he talked about flying the glider was in world war three Okay. Which there's a much bigger. I want to get the novelization because I guess there's a lot more that they that was in the script that didn't make it that the novelization goes into, like why he wears an eye patch. You know, no one ever asked that question. I just but assumed it, he lost an eye. He actually he still has his eye. the The pupil is permanently uh, dilated because of some kind of nerve gas reaction. Oh, really? So it's like super light sensitive. Oh, so. I would. I, that'd just been weird if he lifted it up though and had like that, like just wide open pupil. <laughs> that would be <been>, like, creepy. <laughs> um, but so the the legend of the snake is there. He's he gets to the uh, to the island and um, immediately he's trying to figure out where the president is uh, with some really great 1997 tech. 
um, that's like 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 what a translocator bracelet that has a 15 minute runtime that is is just a signal to let him know let everybody know that he's there still. Yeah. He has a countdown clock that's like the size of like a flavor flavor clock on his wrist that like that should <laughs> and um you know whatever it is what it is you know it's 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 the 1980s imagining what tech would look like 20 years later and they thought wow this is going to be really small. Which yeah. is which is interesting that like and I admittedly yes cassettes still existed in 1997, mm-hmm. but like the fact that like cassette tapes play such a large role, like they didn't <laughs> try to find another like, you know, like oh it's a crystal or a you know a yeah a disc or you know whatever. It would have been it's great. very interesting to me that like they they still went with like the. I mean the only way it would have been better was if it was like an eight track. That's what I was about to say. It's like <laughs> we have to get the president's eight track back. Like oh no, and then like they get it. It's double tracking where you hear information on both sides like i don't know what's going on so no so then like um you know the 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 rest of the movie then is him trying to find the president and then also the the complications of because there's these like you know different uh, power struggles in the island uh there's different groups of people they they kind of get into a little bit of them but the main one you worry about you find out about is the duke who who runs a great portion of of uh, you know Manhattan, who uh, that's played by Isaac Hayes. Yes, um, and awesome. The dude, like I noticed that every time they showed him, he'd always have a twitch in his eye. Like no matter what was going on, is all right. I would twitch. <laughs> I think that was on purpose, just to show like he's calm, but don't mess with him type of thing. Um, yeah, and so you, you hit runs with him. Ernest Borgnine is cabbie, which is, is the most Ernest Borgnine, just happy as can be, <laughs> whipping Molotov cocktail, still talking, love it. Um, but yeah, uh, it's just, it's Harry Dean Stanton as a uh, brain, um, and Adrian Barbeau cause it's a John Carpenter film. You got to have her in there too. So, and Tom Atkins got to mention Tom Atkins as well. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I, I watch this movie periodically. I enjoy it. I, I, I am a fan of ticking clock scenarios because I feel like done right. It just, you know, obviously it adds tension, but it also, you know, there's going to be a finality one way or another. Yeah. Um, but the ticking clock of the president has to get out because he has to respond to a summit. And then there's also the ticking clock of snake needs to get him out or snakes going to die. Like there's the, the world stakes snake doesn't care about that though. Snake just cares about himself. I love how they put him in the position every time just to basically be, yeah, I don't care. I just need to get this done. And I don't know if you'd find that kind of hero anymore. You know, like I don't, I mean it would exist in some spaces, but to, to, to be in a, like, I think I think it'd be a challenge for a movie that's going to be in theaters to have such an unapproachable character. I'm not saying likable because, I, I mean, I like Snake. I don't know a thing about him. Right. He'd probably leave me to die the first time I'd fall through the floor chock full of nuts. But, you know, hey, whatever. Like, I respect him, you know. But he, there's, there's not a lot there in terms of, like, like, immediate connectability with Snake. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a modern-day counterpart and i i can't think of one off the top of my head i mean there's yeah, yeah there's I, the the frank grillo character in the the second purge movie where he's a man on a mission uh, and even the director even said that he uh, if he had had a chance to, with a bigger budget his second movie would be more like escape from new york so okay. there's a lot of them you know experiencing the purge out in the streets and he you find out he has a motivation for what he's doing but he shows him this badass car, like just tricked out with gun. Like he has a bunch of guns, every body armor, all this stuff. He's ready to go. And it's like, and he, and it's basically people, he sees people that need help. And like, he has this notion of like, I just can't let them die. But I'm like, they're also going to get in the way of my goal. 
So there's that kind of conflict as well that you see a little bit with Snake. They're like, because even like, even I mentioned Chock Full of Nuts, where the one girl's confronting him about, like, oh, I know you. Um, like, I got stuck out here after dark. The crazies are out there. Um, and when she gets pulled to the floor, he even reaches for her, but then realizes that if he goes for her, he's going to get pulled down too, and he just lets her go. It isn't like he completely abandons her, but he realizes that it's a foregone cl- conclusion. So why, you know, I have to, I have to save myself. I mean, to be fair, I was <clears throat> while you're talking, I was just thinking about uh, um, the beginning of uh, Serenity uh, with um, Nathan Fillion is Mal. Yeah, has a very similar thing where um, you know he has to choose whether or not to save somebody or not, and he basically doesn't save them and shoots them. Yeah, as sort of a piece of mercy. Um, but uh, that whole arc of that film is about him finding something to believe in. Um, and he sort of steps away from that sort of not unapproachable because his character is never unapproachable, but he's definitely out for himself in a lot of ways in that film. And it's a, again, a continuation of a character from a series, but like that's the, the closest I can think of off the top of my head. Not so much of a character being exactly like Snake, but having a similar outlook well mal mal is a more damaged version of han solo right like, and i mean and i'm not I'm, I'm not trying to equate i'm just saying like there's a little bit of charm they had ideals they kind of got crushed and, and again you know snake is a character clearly he served his country in some fashion and fought a lot for a lot of things and um and it even and it kind of even comes out at the end of the film whenever he goes to ask the president a question it's like you get that moment of like did the president learn anything like, did he actually appreciate? And then he starts getting presidential and like acting like, you know, like what he just went through meant nothing uh, because he's out now, you know? And then Snake is like, you know, you, you almost get the moment of like, he was about to like do a good thing, but he's like, he never learned anything. I'm going to leave him his own devices and I'm going to walk off and that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying Snake's not a complicated character. I'm just saying initially all you ever get is everybody else's reaction to him. And Kurt Russell, he, he, he he gives you plenty by not giving you anything. Right. And that that's, and, you know, that maybe that's a cop-out statement, but I, I love how straight faced, like it's basically, it's like the president's in trouble and he's like president of what? Like, like I just like questioning, like who cares? Like, why does this even matter? Like, I'm going to go to this hell hole anyway. Like, why are you talking to me? You yeah. know? So, um, but okay. So, um, for, for its time and place, what did you think of, um, there, there are a few special effects in the film. What did you think of the glider sequence in terms of going over the cityscape with the the grid patterns of the buildings and the wireframes? Um, I mean, it's. I think it still works. I think after watching it and then reading up on it and realizing that it wasn't actually even wireframes, it was a a model painted black with actual wires Mm -hmm. on it. um, Gives it a little bit more life to it, um, I guess, than if they tried to uh, do a computer simulation at that time, which I guess was available, but would have been too cost prohibitive. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to like, cause we had this discussion with the Terminator, you know, uh, and aliens, you know, where you were like, uh, some theme show a little bit, you know, yeah. um, I, I, I will say that like, it stuck out a little bit more for me than, <laughs> Uh, I would like to admit um, I, that's the stuff I just love because uh, you're right. I do know 
that it was a set that they just put a camera over and they're like, well, just fake it. And it's like, it works so well. Yeah. And then knowing that James Cameron had a hand in that and he had a hand in a lot of the matte painting. So he was learning and applying a lot of this stuff that he would then take into his other films. It's like, it's interesting to see the genesis of some of the, some of the movie magic right. they were doing in this. And I feel like, you know, if, if we didn't know that, we would probably never question it. Right. And I, I, that's why I think a lot of that kind of still holds up. Um, and there's a lot of that where Kurt, Kurt Russell's just sitting in, you know, probably in a dark room in a chair and they just got red light all over his face and he's acting like he's flying. You know, it doesn't, it, you, you get it. You don't need to show him physically, you know, like I mean, a zoomed out shot of him in the cockpit flying and landing on the World Trade Center. To be fair, though, I mean, that's half of what Robert Downey Jr.'s performance is now of Iron Man. Oh, yeah. No, where I, it's you're absolutely right. of his yeah. face with lights on it, you yeah. know? <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's still a technique that works pretty well, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 maybe they stuck out a little bit more for me, but it's certainly not something that I would hold against the film. Um, yeah. But I, it was interesting once I was reading up about it and seeing how the or I shouldn't say seeing, but reading up on how they did it, where I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, and that I understand why it looks like it does. And um, how did you feel about the fight between him and uh, uh, Ox Ox Baker, uh, the wrestler? I think his name uh, Ox. Let's see here. Who is it? it towards the end, whenever he's yeah. uh, thrown in, um, I'll get the I'll get the it's name. It's got here. a little bit of uh, Indiana Jones against the guy at the airplane. Yeah. feel to it <laughs> but i mean i guess that's technically because uh they're both out the same year i believe both were 81 so um yeah ox baker i did yeah. his name slag was his name whatever <laughs> uh is yangief with more body hair is what he, but like but i just it's a the, fun scene the, you like you really get the feeling that like they're really hitting, not hitting each other, but they're really going at it with those, like, because there's a point where Snake is thrown in this, like, wrestling ring with this guy. It's, like, you know, three times the size of him. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, he's going to wrestle him. And then, like, all of a sudden they get handed bats. <laughs> and so, yeah. And it's like, oh, and a trash can lid. Guess we're going to do this then. <laughs> and then, like, round one's over, and then the bats go away, and then a bat with spikes driven through it, like nails is given to him. It's like, I like how they keep increasing the probability of death as they have this fight. <laughs> Um, but it's just, I, there are times where I feel like some of the, the movies at that time, the fight choreography, um, unless it's focused upon, isn't the strongest. Mm-hmm. I thought that still hold up really, it held up really well, especially the sudden ending to it. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I bought Kurt Russell was holding his own. I bought that he was getting pushed to the limit cause like he looked exhausted by the time that was done. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was great. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I want to step back to for a second because you talked about the cast a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> and that is one of the things that I'll say about this movie. Like, there are a lot of people who are sort of Carpenter's players. Kurt Russell is one. Tom Atkins is one. Um, even Jamie Lee Curtis makes an appearance as a voice at the beginning of the film. Yes. Um, but I will say that overall, I think that this is, and I and Donald Pleasance, of course, but I, I'd say that, like, this film is probably his best cast, maybe? Although that's hard to say with The Thing, because The Thing is literally like, you know, a 12 Angry Men type situation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but when I look at it, I mean... I mean is there anybody a, that you cast differently in this? No, that's, no, that's yeah. what I mean. Like, um, from Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbeau to... Um, uh, <laughs> Adrian, I thought you were going to say, like, our, our Adrian Barboobs. I thought that's what you were going to say. <laughs> no. like, I mean, that is prominent in the film, but, yeah. um, you know... Um, 
<laughs> Ernest Borgnine. Uh, Lee Van Cleef, I think, is interesting to talk about because he's yes. he's not one of Carpenter's regular players, and I don't think they work together again after this. Film. No, uh, and 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 yeah, and even at this point, he. Uh, yeah, I mean, he still he lived to eighty nine, so he still had um, <clears throat> some gas in the tank. But he was already uh, he had a lot of struggles with alcoholism, and and he over the years, like there was just acts like um, injuries that were building up. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess there was a point in the filming of this movie where he just had problems standing upright, so his wife was there to assist. So if, if you notice, there's a lot of those scenes of him sitting by the microphone, just saying "snake," like you know, yeah. like, but. It's just he's such a presence, and just there, like it's ah, this the bit when he's like doing like kind of the dress down of Snake in the office, and they're having that back and forth, and it's like there, it just Hulk isn't the biggest of characters in the film, but Lee Van Cleef, just him being there, shorthand for being like like the guy's cunning and and knows and he keeps calling out snake on every possible thing that snake's going to do cuz it's like he would do it too. Yeah. And I love Lee Van Cleef in this movie and like I've just I've had this love affair with him the past uh 2 years just from watching all these cool westerns he's been in and the Twilight Zone episode recently that we covered on the other show just to just read about him and how earlier in his career um, someone told him like, you need to, you know, change, you need to get plastic surgery and change the, like the angle of your nose. Cause it's, it's very, you know, distinct. And he was like, no. And he, he, you know, he has a unique look, you yeah. know? And, um, and then whenever he was in, um, oh, the fistful of dollars and then the good, the bad and the ugly, he, you know, he started playing like this villain and he was really, really good at it. And I, just as a character actor, I will always like everything I've seen him in. You know, which my exposure to him is as great as other people that I know, but everything I've seen him in, I have loved. Yeah. And he's great. Well, I think his presence is felt because he's sort of the one who kicks the story off for us anyways. Yes. And he's he's throughout the film and then he pops up again at the end. But um I think that he's an interesting presence, particularly, you know, Carpenter worked with Donald Pleasance, I think, four times. Um, if we're not counting Halloween two, which he wrote but didn't direct. Um and I think maybe it's actually five now that I think about it. But um, it is interesting that, you know, Carpenter has a, a knack for picking actors who have a, a presence about them. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, both of them were long established. But I don't know that if you go to the 80s, you know, how many other, you know, Lee Van Cleef movies are you going to find? You know, how many other films are you going to find with Donald Pleasance? You know, yeah. um, he found actors and, and used them to their best abilities. Um, and really made them stars in the pictures that he was making. Pictures, like I'm some sort of (laughs) old-timey. Those pictures he's making. You get the feeling that Hawk's character, had he been like 20, 25 years younger, he would have went in himself to take care of this. You know, and it's like, it's almost like he's old snake talking to, you know, it's like he's been there, done that, and knows exactly what he's thinking. And it's like, um, and it's and it's also especially at the end, whenever you have him leaning against a wall smoking a cigarette, and he's talking to Snake, and he's like, "I'll give you an offer, you know, yeah, to join me." It's like it's almost like you see what Snake would have been had he went with the authority, and he was like, "Nope, I'm done, I'm out," like kind of thing. And it's like, so yeah, Hulk's a cool character, and and like I said, I just Lee Van Cleef just guy could squint the paint off a barn is how i feel about it i love it yeah yeah. i guess the point that i was making was is that carpenter has a he gives his films an added 
sense of gravitas by some of the actors that he chooses in, you know, what they bring mm-hmm. by their performances. I mean, I agree with that. I just wanted to say Lee Van Cleef was great. So, and, and <laughs> no. I love him. And I love him. And no. I was using him as yeah. the example. Well, and like yeah. Isaac Hayes isn't all, like, I, you know, from what I've seen him in, like, I, you know, he, he isn't always the strongest, like, actor, but he didn't need to say much in this movie. He right. just needed to be, to be the Duke, you know, the A number one. Like, it, he just exuded cool and just like, like I it just you know shows up in that chandelier car and all it's it's just it's yeah it's it, another thing too I wanted to talk about is like I don't know where that idea for that came from because I know there's something called art cars that people will do where they kind of do um like the extreme things to vehicles like that just for the sake of just presentation because mm-hmm. when you have chandeliers in the front of your car you're not driving that car fast it's just meant to be looked at right, right. so um I you know like it makes me think about the art design in the film and how there, there is a, and this, we'll, we'll talk about this more with Bronx warriors about the idea of you have this, this like dystopian future setting and you have these little details in this movie that, that speak to the world around it. Like you know, the, the Duke's car. Like you don't need to know, like know that he views that as a symbol of like visible power. So he's going to roll slowly around New York. And you're not going to mess with them. How in Brain's uh, living area, his library, there's the oil derrick in the background, like, you know, pumping gas or whatever it is. Like, that's an interesting thing because they talk about limited resources on the island. But did you notice in between, like, the shelves of books, there was, like, laundry lines and things? Like, he was living there. Like, it's, it's said so, but they don't, they don't, like show you directly it's just this is his dwelling and he lives in this library like i like those little those little like notes in there that built a lot of that world well yeah i mean everything from the like you were saying like the art direction or the way it was uh the production was made to character details like that are all things that are informing the story they're whether subliminally or maybe subconsciously is a better word to use. Like it's telling you about the characters without telling you, a, mm-hmm. without somebody saying like, yes, his name's brain. So, you know, the first thing that you think of is he's either really smart or he's a dumbass, And they're just <laughs> calling him that because he's like, yeah, that guy's a real brain. But mm-hmm. like those things tell you things about the character. And I, I, you know, we see that kind of thing. I still think in cinema, but I think a lot of times too, we see a lot of telling you about the character as opposed to letting, the surroundings and the, the things around the character tell you about yeah who they it, are um so uh, and their place in the story i should say yeah i just i said the i wanted them to mention that but uh, no i think it's yeah. a very good point i think it's actually something that carpenter does really well in a lot of his films yeah i, I think that he lets the because they so the, a lot of this movie was shot in uh east st louis uh, because they were trying to find an area that resembled New York, but like an even more rundown version of New York. And right. someone that I think it was even um, uh, Deborah Hill that grew up in that area suggested East St. Louis because it was falling apart and there had been a fire there previous, like a few years previously. So they go and visit the area and there's a lot of just burned out buildings that are in disrepair and just things are just falling apart. And they convince uh, the city of St. Louis, I don't know if it's St. Louis in full, but they call it East St. Louis. I don't know how that works, like how we have Cleveland and East Cleveland. They're separate entities, but not. I don't know. They convinced them to turn off 10 blocks of a city at the lights at night for like weeks. Yeah. It's like that will never happen again, you know? Right. But there's something about how they kind of they captured this vibe of like, because there's a lot of these older buildings that were built at a time where, you know, America was growing and, you know, you like these, these will stand the test of time and they're just rubble. 
you know, and uh, them like hauling in the airplane that they used for the set that they cut into three pieces and snuck in in the middle of the night because they didn't have a permit like to, to set it up. <laughs> like Knowing that the film was only $7 million and you have this expansive set of Kurt Russell walking around this wreckage that, honestly, the story didn't need to show it because you saw from the reactions, you knew the plane crashed and you saw the escape pod. You didn't necessarily need that in terms of telling the story, but it just shows you like how much more savage everything is. Like yeah. I just awesome. Like Well, I will say you mentioned Deborah Hill as well, and I think that she's kinda the unsung hero of a lot of Carpenter's earlier work. Mm-hmm. And you know, I obviously people like yourself and I, like your movie buffs will know who she is. Um, but I, I do think that uh, you know her contributions to his his filmography cannot be overlooked. Um, and I won't go into his other movies, but like she was a huge part of Halloween. She's a huge part of a lot of his early work. And um, I I do feel like you know when that partnership ended, you know it, it did take a little bit of a toll on the way that uh, hmm. his future work came out and. Um, I think she was a great collaborator and, and like it's I don't want to go into it too much I just wanted to make sure that she got her at least props on this show because I do think that she was a big part of a lot of his early films no that's yeah. fair um, so yeah I just like this is this film I, it's 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 not perfect like the the, the 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 we talk about the ticking time clock like of this like there's tight like it's like daytime and then not like it goes there's this weird shift like, I don't know how, and then there's the whole bit of like, I have 12 minutes left. Let me run all the way up the world trade center to get like, there's these, these weird moments yeah. of like, I don't know about some of this, but this, when you get to the bit where they're on the bridge and they're trying to get to the wall, uh, to get the president out and there's that showdown with the Duke. Uh, and, and then, Oh, and then Donald Pleasance has the gun and just, you know, goes after the Duke. And you just hear that kind of like rage out of Donald Pleasance. Like, it's it just it still works for me like because yeah. he went through some shit in the movie like being well, he like, lost he loses a finger he loses right a finger bat. yeah he's he's like chained to a wall and slowly being shot at there's a bit where he's sitting in an office with like a wig on and he could like which I guess that was Donald <laughs> Pleasant's idea to put the wig on but it's like but you see his character as the president just sitting there like just demeaned <laughs> like, like it's great um, I just Donald Pleasant's is awesome yeah but I um. I, I, I love this movie. And then also we didn't even talk about the score. Like I know yeah. like Carpenter, like he, he scores a lot of his own films, um, very distinct synth, you know, like that's just what he does. Right. And I think, again, when I talk about growing up and, and loving his stuff, I, I listen to a lot of synth wave now and a lot of things that have been informed by Carpenter. And I'm like, Oh wow, this guy really pretty much was foundational in my life. And I just didn't put two and two together. Um, I love the music in this movie. Uh, I feel like, some of his scores as great as they are like I just there's something about like synth soundtracks in like the 70s and 80s that don't always age well with the film um and it's again it's heresy i'm sure every score of his is great for the films that they are but i feel like this one doesn't need it doesn't feel like it has to age because it deals with the near future even though you see 1997 now you know you know yeah. like whatever it's, if we're well past that it's the near future it's this dark you know, future of the eighties. So I feel like the, the, the score holds up phenomenally. Like I, I love it. Like I like, so listen to it today at work. It's so good. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean, even if you want to go beyond like, uh, his scores that 
did make it into the films. There's a collection of his lost scores, like things that didn't make it into mm-hmm. films. Um, and that's a great like selection of music as well. I have that. Um, and uh, I listen to that quite a bit. And um, even on that topic, today actually the first track from Halloween was released from the new Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first piece of Carpenter-inspired score or, or that he worked on that we've gotten for a Halloween movie in like 30 years. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, basically, yes, it, it is. It, it does contain some of the original theme to it. Um, and it's sort of a reworking of it. But it's still like got me excited just to be like, oh, my God, I'm getting a new piece of John <laughs> Carpenter music, you know, like. Um, so his his scores have an effect on on me like um, and I realize I'm talking about another director here but Robert Rodriguez is one of those guys who also does a lot of his own scoring yeah and when um, uh, the grindhouse came when grindhouse came when the grindhouse came out when the grindhouse came out when grindhouse came out his uh, his film um, Planet Terror he gave it a very carpenter style mm-hmm. score and like as soon as it kicked in I was like, Oh my God! Like that sounds so much like Carpenter, but it works perfectly. And I, I do feel that like maybe his score wouldn't work as well on other people's films, but it certainly works. Like I, I don't know. I think like his scores are almost inseparable from the films that they're a part of. Yeah, I agree. I just, you um, know. even like I mentioned in the Mouth of Madness as well. That's almost got like a hard rock, heavy metal sound to it, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. It's different than it's not synthy at all, but it's it, it, it being like a huge Metallica fan, like it felt like he was kind of trying to ape that sound in '93 um, or '94 when it came out, um, and I thought that that was a real interesting way of him scoring a film as well. So. Yeah, I mean, just it all it all leads to the fingerprints of Carpenter over his work that make it distinct, right? Like, like um, even though because I have the Escape from New York music in my head right now, the, this the beginning you know music that you hear from Big Trouble in Little China is very uh, you know like identifiable. Um, it's you know it, there there is uh, there, there's something about a Carpenter film that you you know there's these elements that like you know. As each box gets ticked off, you're like, this is why I love this. Mm-hmm. Um, Escape from New York, I. I I enjoy this film. Like, and I, I know this isn't like you know refuting what we talked about. This isn't like saying it's a bad movie whatsoever. He, bold uh, statement right here, folks. Paul enjoys this film. I know. I know. <laughs> um, no, I just I, I, you you give me high concept sci-fi because it really is like the the high concept of in the future we're going to wall off an entire borough of New York and just throw people in there and see what happens, and then you deal with like the hinted at like authoritative state. Um, you have. There are political like ideas in the movie, but not necessarily like there are some statements like you get snakes stance, you get like I said, Hulk kind of being like you know the other side of it, uh, and at the very end, whenever you know uh, Snake is pulling the the cassette tape apart and yeah. is like basically saying no, like screw it, you know you're done, <laughs> like yeah. kind of thing, you know. Um, there 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 is some of that, but then you also layer in the idea of this ecosystem that's like. Um, weird weirdly developing in the island of manhattan because they still sit in supplies it's this weird thing it's like you these people don't ever come back out but you're going to give them food so you don't feel bad about putting people in manhattan i don't know where that comes from but then like there's the weird culture there's the uh the crazies underground there's the duke and his gang like and there's the the cannibal people that are up top on the one street that have people's heads on pikes that they never get into why other than like you probably should have driven down that street like yeah. there's a lot there's a there's this a lot going on here there's a lot of ideas 
and it's it's just I it's it's a, it's a good film. Uh, and if you've not seen it, I know I've ruined parts of it, but it came out in eighty one. Sorry, um, but you know if you're not if you're not watching eighty one or nineteen ninety seven or now, maybe you should go check it out. Yeah, and I mean the last thing I was going to say too yeah. is is that, uh, and I guess if we're talking spoilers, fine. But like, um, it is interesting to me, and it wasn't something that occurred to me until last night. Is that like, for the most part, like. A lot of people just die, and I mean that's yep. certainly part of his point at the end when he says, "You know, did it did it even matter to you?" But like, for whatever reason, like I'm always kind of surprised when Harry Dean Stanton is killed and then Adrian Barbeau is killed, and it's just sort of like it happens, but it's not. And Ernest Borgnine, and Ernest, like, yeah. like we don't even like we didn't really talk about him that much. Ernest Borgnine, he's just a delight at anything he's in. Like, and and the thing is, he like people could accuse him of playing the same character, and he doesn't. You know, but like just his whole like I grew up driving this cab or whatever, and it's like you get the idea they put the wall up, and he was like, "I'll be okay." And he's right. driving this cab around, like, like you know, I got my I got my tapes, I got my Molotov cocktails, I'm good. Like and it's just this like he and then when we meet him. He's he's the only person in the movie I think that smiles. Yeah, like like other than the one weird David Bowie like weirdo that's with uh the Duke that has to make like hissing noises ever so often for. For whatever reason uh, that character's name is uh romeo or no sorry it's romero his name is romero so there you go uh i i thought he was kind of odd yeah. <laughs> um but you know but like you're I'm, I, I derailed you i'm sorry but i just have to mention Ernest borgnine because he he was he was great in this and when you get to his like his demise it's like oh well that that's just that's just mean like, it's just like, it's just like, <laughs> Uh, I guess I always look in my head when I think of the movie, I think of it as a fun adventure. And then I'm like, God, there's a lot of people who just no, die in this movie. No, not, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it's supposedly according to the trivia. Anybody in the movie that says, I thought you were dead dies. Like, oh. just, you know, so that's, you know, that's, that's a thinker. I did. Not <laughs> that's a, that. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just, anyway, escape from New York. It's, it, it's, you know, good movie. A uh, good introduction to Carpenter. If you've not, you know, if you're not familiar with his work, this is just kind of a good, I think, good entry level because it, you know, has a lot of. It's a, it's a very approachable story and it's an easy movie to watch. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would start with the thing just because the thing is, you know, I, I, brutal and depressing. It's brutal and depressing, but it's also like it's 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 cream of the crop, but I, I guess, I don't know. I, well, that, that's a strip. It's like a strip horror movie. And this, yeah. And, and Carpenter, like, what do you give them? Like, I mean, cause I me, mean, Halloween isn't necessarily his signature either. Right. Like, and right. Like, um, I mean, maybe, maybe big trouble in little China, because if you can get behind all that, then you can watch anything else he's going to present to you. Yeah. Cause you know? I'm like, I've never even thought about that. I'm like, what would I use to introduce somebody to Carpenter? I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. Cause I, I feel like, well, I think I, I think I th- that's kind of hits that part that mark though, because there's a lot of stuff that you like for a lot of different reasons. I think that this is. Uh, I feel like Starman might have actually been my introduction to him. Now yeah, that I think about but it, but that's a, that's still sci-fi. But that's more of a love story, which is yeah. that's fine. You know, like again, his versatility of what he would choose to do is yeah. also really great. Um, but, it's just a question that I guess I'd never considered. Yeah. So um, that's that's a good question that we'll leave up to you, fine listeners. If tell us what movie you would you know give somebody to be like here is a perfect example of john carpenter's work or here's a great introduction to him the ghost of mars <laughs> no um so 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that will do it for the talk about uh, Escape from New York. Because um, I, 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 if I can keep talking about it, I and I'll just keep it. rambling. Because like yeah. every time you bring up a point, I'm like, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, so we're going to transition into 1990, The Bronx Warriors. Uh, going to play the trailer, and then we'll we'll uh, talk about this uh, kinda uh, Escape from New York knockoff, and we'll have some words about that when we get there. Yeah. In the year 1990. The New York City authorities declared the wasteland known as the South Bronx to be a high-risk area. There would be no further attempt to restore law and order to that notorious borough. The South Bronx had long since been controlled by gangs with such names as the Riders, Scavengers, Iron Men, Tigers, and Sharks. To venture without permission into the territory of a rival power was to risk war. War with no holds barred. War to the death. Only one man had anything to gain from such a war. Only one man could prevent it. Only one man. 1990, the Bronx Warriors. that all the fight sounds reminded me of like street fighter like punches like you know like quick quick jabs and kicks what i what i love is the fact that it's a war to the death you know most wars <laughs> i think are fought to the death usually it's, like it's I, a war till we both get tired and go home for the night <laughs> oh man uh so yeah 1990 the bronx warriors uh written actually a number of people here uh eliza um uh brigante i'm gonna mess that up uh enzo castellari uh, Anton Pagan, that's a great name. It's probably Pagan, but I'm like Pagan, you know. <laughs> and then uh, Dardano uh, Sa- Sacchietti. Um, yeah, again, it's Italian, and I'm going to mess it up. Uh, you have uh, uh, the, some of the cast names that we will will know. Um, oh, 
Wait, I think that's. I'm going to look this up. You're going to be surprised. We're going to have a connection. Yeah. No, I know where you're going with okay. that. Okay. Well, I didn't even think about it till right now. <laughs> uh, we have Vic Morrow, who was Hammer, who I think did the narration in the trailer. Um, Christopher Conley, which I thought he was the guy that was truck driver. I thought I knew him from things. He looked familiar. Didn't know him. Fred Williamson. He's, he's the man. The biggest name in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, he plays the ogre. Uh, Mark Gregory is trash. Like, that's his name, not, well, he, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> his character's name is trash. Kind, kind of appropriate. Uh, <laughs> George Eastman was the, the was it the, the Golan, or Golan, whatever his name is. And he was, uh, the angry uh, arm wrestler from Hands of Steel. Steel. So, well, let me rephrase. He would one day become the angry arm wrestler from Hands of Steel. I did not know we'd have a Hands of Steel connection here. <laughs> that makes me very happy. Um, and then, um, yeah, there it looks like there's a lot of people in here that, you know, yeah, no one else I'd recognize off the top of my head. But I believe, in a connection to your other show, I believe this is Vic Morrow's last film before he was killed uh, on the set of the Twilight Zone. His last completed film, yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Vic Morrow, he he uh, he died during the filming of the first segment and the Twilight Zone, the movie, uh, which was directed by... Um, well, there's four different people. It's, yeah, but John Landis directed that yeah. segment and a helicopter uh, malfunctioned and crushed him and a child, if I remember yeah. right, which is like horrible. Um, but yeah, Vic, Vic Morrow, just to mention... He was another film that I watched for Year of the Knockoff, 1977's Message from Space, which is the the Japanese like like taking back of Star Wars. Oh, okay. And that's a that's a wonderfully fun little movie that he plays a, a recovering like alcoholic leader type guy. He's really good at it. Like you kind of like even in in this where he's kind of a jerk the whole movie, he still kind of has a presence. So yeah. yeah, Vic Morrow was cool. Um, but yeah, Fred Williamson steals the show. Like I just, I kind of wish the whole movie was him, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, the premise of Bronx Warrior, nineteen ninety, the Bronx Warriors, is that I I wrote down the title card or the the information card here, like like we have first gate from New York. It says uh, nineteen ninety. The Bronx is officially declared no man's land. The authorities give up all attempts to restore law and order. From then on, the area is ruled by the Riders. And it's implied that the writers are like the gang to deal with, right? And the yeah. writers are our trash and company. Um, and they ro roll around these cool motorcycles with these glowing skulls. That's pretty badass looking. Mm -hmm. um, but then, so it starts off with this girl running into the Bronx to get away. And you don't know her whole story until later. And she's she is immediately uh, encountered by a gang of guys wearing like puffy armor <laughs> <laughs> like that's supposed to be like a V like, and then like a helmet and roller skates and they're supposed to be hockey sticks, but they're not quite, they're kind of yeah. like field hockey sticks. Like, and they accost her and then the riders show up and then they fight them. And then you find out like trash and her get together, which is like, they don't really get into that. Like the next scene, it's like, Oh, they've been together for a while now. It's like, since the last scene, I don't know. <laughs> I want to go back real quick yeah. though. And that, uh, that uh, beginning scene where they're fighting, um, uh, there's a great moment on the motorcycle where yes, yes, yes. Thank you for mentioning. I want to okay. mention this too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like these blades come out of this. I guess they're not technically blades. They're more like spikes or they look like, they look like switch blades popped out from the sides of these bikes. They knock down two of the roller skate guys. Yeah, someone flips these these uh, blades on their bike and they drive through, through and gash the guy's the face. face. And it's great. It's like it's this like a sudden, Joker style, uh, like yeah, uh, smile cut on the dude's face. And I was like, "This is the movie we were in for." Uh, yeah. it set a really high bar. And then the movie didn't do a lot for a while yeah. after that. 
Um, so you find out that the girl, she's actually the heiress or whatever, like next in line to own the Manhattan something corporation. Yeah. I didn't, they, they're one of the biggest arms dealers in like the world and she doesn't want to be part of that. And then she, she, they're the same company from, uh, uh, God, I was going to make a joke and I can't think of the alien knockoff we watched. Uh, uh, from Shocking Dark. Shocking Dark, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, yeah it's the same company. Um, so, it wouldn't surprise me. But, uh, so, basically, she doesn't want to be a part of that, but also, if she is part of, like, if, if she turns 18, they're, they're basically, she's there as figurehead and company can do whatever we want. Whatever. The big thing is she's like a person of import and she's hiding in the Bronx that has been given up on. And so, the company which I didn't re- I thought it was just the cops were sending in people to deal with it, but it's not quite clear if it's the cops or this company. Yeah. Cause I think the company owns the cops kind of like an OCP RoboCop type of thing. And so the cops are trying to come in every so often to figure out what's going on. Cause they want to get her before her 18th birthday. I think that's the big thing is because she turns 18, she can start making decisions on her own legally. Um, which also I didn't realize she was 17 till halfway through the movie. And that made things a little weird too. Yeah, um, but she ends up like being uh, a girlfriend of this guy Trash, who looks like he's seventeen, who's running the riders. He is seventeen. Oh, is he? Yeah, oh. I was reading up on it, and he was uh, uh, when he was cast, he was seventeen. That, well, then that doesn't so, surprise me. Then yeah. so um, there's some tensions rising between him and a rival gang called the Tigers that uh, Fred Williamson's in charge of. Um, I always love like, it when you hear like a like in a movie like you know. <laughs> What's your gang's name? We're the Tigers. tigers. Yeah. What, what are you guys? The Riders. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Like just, that's like, my my. I was watching this and I'm like, well, then why aren't the roller skate guys called the Rollers? Like, why right. is it that? That seems. A, but they're the zombies. Like, <laughs> like because they report to the Golan who has this great fight gym, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. I just I. I could watch a movie of, of the Golan's fight gym. Like that would be amazing to me, but it basically comes down to like, they, they think that the tigers are trying to play them. So the writers are worried. And then in the meantime, the company's gotten this guy named hammer involved to try to find the girl. And he, he has his own ax to grind with the Bronx cause he grew up there, but he also kind of is like law and order. Yeah. Um, and then just, the movie kind of goes from there. Like it, it, it wants to be, gangs gangs versus each other and then it changes gears to be like it just it wants it wanted it started off like escape from new york with the idea that the world gave up on the bronx and that the bronx is going to be ruled by crime and by gangs yeah and then it just shifts into being a warriors knockoff uh which have you seen the warriors uh Yes and no. Like I, <laughs> I have vague memories of it, but I have not watched it as an adult. I saw it as a kid, but I don't have like strong impressions of it. Oh well, yeah. So the Warriors is um, a Walter Hill film uh, from the late seventies that was also set in the near future, in which the you know these gangs in New York have all kind of pretty much at the New York's run by gangs, but. Uh, since they're all fighting with each other, there's no base of power. So you have all these rival gangs like the Warriors, the High Hats, the Turnbull Aces, um, the Baseball Furies, which you see in this with um, <laughs> the Dance Fighters that we get yes. to later. They're called the Iron Men. 
I didn't know that until reading through. They're definitely inspired by the baseball furies with their face makeup. Um, and then their dance moves. I don't know where they got that from. <laughs> and that's another thing too. It's like, it starts to show you these crazy things and it doesn't do anything with them, but it just bugs me. And it was sad because I loved that visual. I loved, I love the beginning, the beginning of the movie before we even get to any of the story is this montage title sequence of everybody putting everybody having weapons. It's an awesome montage. It's great. Like, even if you guys never watched the movie, watch the first three minutes and just that title sequence and tell me that the movie in your head is probably greater than the movie you'll see, but you see, like uh like the girl like the you find out she's um fred williamson's like right hand man she has like these finger knives that like the whole thing is like she pulls them up and shows them to the camera like all you see is the fingers with the knives and then you see maybe a shot later of like of like her ass but she pulls a whip to show you like i don't mess with me i have a whip you know it's like this like she's the only one sexualized everyone else is just like i got an elbow spike you know and i got roller skates it's like and uh, in what, what else was there? Like the the canes with the spikes in them. Uh, like I said, when they saw, when they show Fred Williamson's uh, name, there's roller skates that pop up. Uh, there's a boot knife um, that pops out at the the front of the boot. Like there's a lot of cool ideas in this movie that are just right. so over the top. Um, and then the movie just kind of kind of this is there. I want to say yeah. too that this movie has one of the best. I honestly either he's a fantastic actor. Or he was really drunk, but there is a scene at the beginning of the film. Well, maybe it's like in the first twenty minutes. I guess okay. it's not at the very beginning, but like there's a gentleman who's like taking a piss outside, like, and he's completely hammered. Yeah, and like I honestly believe that actor. Like it may be an Oscar-worthy performance. Like, oh like, no, he he was a he's wreck. either really hammered or he's a brilliant performer i just I want to believe he which. was there and they just shot around him like yeah. i feel like that's like because there's <laughs> he's the bit, got lines of dialogue he does uh there's actually some bits in the movie that had no they weren't planned and they just left them in like <laughs> so whenever the the uh the writers show up to the dock to see their one fallen uh comrade that they think the tigers killed there's a dude playing drums there and he's just playing just playing drums just playing drums there and it's like it kind of it it, it 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 fits the mood a little bit with the music yeah. plan, but they never explain why, why he's playing there. drums to begin with, and then they never explain why when they leave he's gone. Like he just it's like it's just like he like we he's our soundtrack guy and like like he's playing the drums before we show up and then he's just gone. And according to the notes, there was a band there just kind of playing, and uh, Castellaria liked them and just left them and was like, "You can play drums during this," and it was like. I guess that's a thing, you know, yeah. and it's like, it kind of adds this like oddball element to it that I was kind of all about. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And I just, I, I kind of dug it. But then later there's a bit too, where, uh, two of the writers, uh, gangs are, one's being chased by the other, um, down an alley or sorry, a side street. And the one chasing the other. So the second bike wipes out horribly. <laughs> Like, like I was watching it last night. And I, I think I read this, and too. I was like, I "Oh, like I had to stop and rewatch it, not because like I wanted to see it. I'm like, that doesn't look like that was a stunt. It right. wasn't. Yeah. That guy dumped that bike so hard, <laughs> and then just rode into the movie, just being like, "Oh, well, that's why he's not catching him because he just dumped his bike." And it was like, like it's an immediate like. Just like how, whenever you see a bike, just like hiccup and then jerk to the left and then dump over to the right, and the guy just goes flying off of it. It felt like it should have been in a montage of people hurting themselves on oh, America's Funniest yeah, Home Videos. It, it was so bad, like it hurt <laughs> to look at. Um, so yeah, that was something else that just like, well, that's good enough. Let's let's get that in there. Um, so the world of the Bronx Warriors, you're supposed to get this idea that like anarchy is like all over the place. 
and because they didn't have the ability to get the permits for where they were shooting in terms of like the permission to clear out, clear all the streets, you never really get the vibe that the Bronx is a complete disarray because there's times where all the riders are on their motorcycles. They're accosting the one police van and and they're vandalizing it by writing the word shit on the uh, windshield. Yeah. That's, that's what they're, that's their screw the man, which was really weird too, because like, it's almost like a, uh, Teen Wolf styles uh, <laughs> yes. riding on top of the van style yeah. scene. Because, like, the guy gets on top of the van, and, like, I don't know if they were like, he's up there, just keep filming him. Because it yeah. felt like it went on just a little too long. Yeah. And so, but, like, in the background, you just see traffic moving in a normal yeah. clip everywhere. It's like, everyone, it's like, oh, man, I'm sorry that the police gave up on the Bronx, but I got to get to work today. And everyone, like, these pizzas won't deliver themselves. And, like, you just see all this, like, like life behind everything. And I know that's, I, I know that was not intentional, and I know they're trying their best to shoot around it, but there's just so much, like, you're like, this is, a, this is actually a thriving um, anarchy going on right now. Like, and I do was, wonder, like, is that the best, like, Thing that they could think of to paint on the on the windshield like how about just cover the just like just paint it to where they block their view and right. they cause them to wreck i don't know that's just the thought i mean but just like it was just like it seemed that's edgy we'll just spray paint the word shit on this, <laughs> this windshield but then even like with the cops there it's like we're always supposed to investigate and like watch and the guy's like oh we could protect ourselves chase them like it was like so it's so ridiculous but then you have the character of hammer who uh, we first see uh, dressed as a postman, but also wearing like yeah. fighting gloves. Like he was like ready to brawl, dressed as a postal worker, and that's he got he he was talked to by the drunk guy. Yeah, and he was carrying a mailbox tube with him. And like it's like wouldn't a post office worker seem suspicious in an area in which there's no law and no rule? Like he's a federal employee. <laughs> like why would? But whatever. Like so you first meet him, and he's like trying. He's he's trying to sow the seeds between the riders and the tigers. Um, and it, so, but he goes about it like the loudest way possible, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, but it's Vic Morrow. I just love Vic Morrow. Like yeah. he just, if he has a, he has a shotgun hiding in that postal tube. He shoots one dude and then the girl beside him. Yeah. Like, which is like her reaction is kind of slow. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like, you know, she sees him shoot her or she sees him shoot her boyfriend and then she's I can't remember if she screams or if she doesn't scream until actually he fires upon her. But like, it's such a delayed reaction. Like well, she's almost I, surprised that he's going to shoot her. I too. was surprised that he shot her. Cause it felt like, you know, like it, I didn't, not that this movie wasn't going to go there. They, you know, but it's like, it seemed very sudden. Cause he was like, he, the, the, the guy was a member of the writer. So I guess it was his girl. So as soon as they were both dead firing a loud gun, he takes a tiger's ring and puts it down to be like, Oh, this big, they'll know. Right. And then, but they see him and they chase him away. And it's like, it's like this like Looney Tunes, like chase through everything. And then he ends up popping up behind one of them through a hole in the wall and dropping like a smoke grenade or something and runs away. And it's like, they're like, well, we know who did this. It's like, oh, well, the ring, it's the tiger's ring. We know the tigers did it then. It's like, no, it was the mailman. We don't, <laughs> like, it's pretty obvious, right? Like, um, so it's, yeah, so it becomes this big thing eventually of, uh, the, the, the girl who we see at the beginning, she tells trash her, her secret. And she realizes that a lot of this escalation is happening because people are putting pressure on other people to find her. So she wants to go and he's like, no, but I love you. I can't emote, but I love you. And I have a single tear running down my face. 
I just I feel bad for the kid. Like maybe he went on to have a pretty good career, but I don't think they, he went on to have a pretty good per- career. But there were, I believe, two sequels to this. Uh, yeah, which I was going to point out that I just noticed that there was uh, Escape from the Bronx, uh, which I need to see this movie because it actually has Trash come back uh, as a character. And I believe uh, that it was also done as a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. Oh well, then maybe all the more reason. But Trash is in it. <laughs> uh, what else? Who's who else is in it? Oh, I want the reason I mentioned the Iron Men because they are the dance crew. Yeah. Um, the leader of the Iron Men that you see her for a second. She's actually back in the second movie as Iron Man leader. She's actually credited this time. Oh wow! So she actually was not credited in the first film. And it's like again, you thought that was going to go somewhere. Like like at the very end, whenever shit's hitting the fan, and you got like the tiger and his crew. Or sorry, um, the, uh, the Gollum, not Gollum, uh, Fred Williamson, whatever you call him, the Ogre, the the Ogre, the the, the Ogre. <laughs> that just sounds like green yogurt that I do not want. Uh, the, when he so he got the Ogre and his crew, the Tigers, whatever, like uh, fighting with the Riders to fight off against like you know um, the the members from the company because they have flamethrowers and all this other stuff. Like why couldn't the Iron Man show up? And like dance fight in the middle of all that, like you just like you just hear like you know five, six, seven, eight. These guys just come in with their hats and their canes and just start beating the shit out of people. That would have been the greatest payoff ever. Well, I felt like it was supposed to be like a um, a uh, um, oh god, a Clockwork Orange type thing. Like I felt like it was supposed to be like. Have you ever seen Clockwork Orange? I that have not. Okay, yeah. so I mean, um, I, I know that like the bowler hats and like yeah, the, 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 I felt yeah. like that was what their look was supposed to be similar to why they dance fight though is still like because <laughs> like i was watching the movie and it was before you and i text you and i'm like i got two words <laughs> dance fighting and you're like what are you talking about and i'm like oh you haven't watched it yet just yeah, wait i just i was but uh yeah i i don't know i just i feel like they they saw the warriors and were like well we got to have weird gangs yeah you know? like the baseball furies they don't play baseball but they dress like baseball players and have bats so the iron men they'll tap dance and fight you know whatever but the other thing you mentioned the, the flamethrower scene and uh like i don't know like it it looked like some people might have gotten sinned. Oh, I know. I just there's no doubt. I think I think that there was no extras. It was like boom, done, right? Because they kept using some of the footage over and over again. It's like because they probably killed them. And I was yeah. like, that's fine. We're on our way. Oh, so yeah, the 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 film eventually just it, it goes to this whole thing of like trash has to go get his girl back because she was captured by the zombies, aka guys on roller skates, uh, who was being led by the Gollum. Gollum, Gollum. They call him the Golan in the credits here, but I thought it was the Gollum. Uh, in the movie, uh, who knows? I yeah, George I, Eastman, uh, arm wrestler extreme. <laughs> and in the meantime, you also find out that one of the members of the writers is uh, you know uh, double crossing trash and trying to like you know whatever. Uh, and it's just there, there's a lot of needless things going on. And then at one point, the the writers are trying to get to uh, uh, the um, the ogres gang to get help, and they're going through these underground tunnels, and they come across a gang called the Scavengers, aka Dusty Cavemen. Like plaster cavemen <laughs> yeah. that that are just like brutal, like and they're just there, you know. It's just really a lot of oddball stuff, and then uh, it culminates in this big fight with uh, you know the military people or the police people, whatever, being led by Hammer because Hammer has like you, you he has a he has an interesting kind of take on everything where he's just like 
I don't care about anything. I want everything <laughs> to burn. And it's like, and, 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 and trash is like, well, I'll let people know that, you know, you're just trying to hide the fact that you're from the Bronx. He's like, no, he's like, I want people to remember it. I'm like, by destroying everything. I just, it seemed like there's a bit at, he's like on the second floor, looking down through this like open hole in the ceiling. He's just like, cackling at everything going on and it's almost like he's getting like full on like um like overly dramatic i don't want to say like moby dick but it's like that kind of like he's like he's like i'm your god and he's like yelling down at everybody it's like yeah. he's wearing this full policeman outfit and he's just laughing as everybody's burning and it's like it's it's a kind of an interesting image yeah but it's like three minutes for the end of the movie and it's like you're that you also forgot that there was a, a gigantic cake of like a city <laughs> Yeah. Like, I yeah, don't even know how to describe it. Fred Williamson, they, 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 whatever, they think everything's over before the, the police show up. And he's like, trash, I got a surprise for you. <laughs> and then they bring out this large cake that's like the skyline of New York City. And it's like this weird, weirdly simple sponge cake. I don't know how to describe it. It's like it's not like it's frosted. It's no, just... it's like it's like Rice Krispie treats all stacked on top of each other. And everybody starts singing happy birthday to the girl. Um, and uh, Anne is her name. Um, and it was like... And then Fred Williams is like, eh, actually, the surprise is for her. It's like, well, why did you tell Trash there's a surprise for him? And it's because she's turning 18. But it was like, yeah. how did the Tigers get time to make a cake for her? I don't know. After all that. It's a very large cake. Yeah. And this was like just right after they got back from fighting the Gollum and his fight gem. Yeah. Which had guys on roller skates like doing kind of like weird drills. Um, there were two guys wearing like sparring gloves, but also capes. Like and like headgear, like it was. And then there was something else going on. Oh no, there was one day, one guy just wearing sparring headgear and regular clothes, like like you know, like sweatpants and shirt, and swinging nunchucks around in the background. Yeah. You see him? Like, it reminded me of the scene in Wayne's World where <laughs> supposed to open a door where he opens the door and he sees like the guys training. It's literally like that, but it's just in the background of a scene for no but, reason. But there's just like so many activities going on. I'm like, what? What is the point of your army? Like I, I just. <laughs> I like it was it was one of those things where I'm like, can I just see a movie of, of the Golan and his his gang, the zombies? Can I just see a, a movie about the zombies? It was so like this, those are the parts of the film that I absolutely loved because it made it, it made no sense, but someone made a conscious decision to do it. And it's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about with Escape from New York, where the details were in the corners and it kind of built the world. Yeah. This was like right there in front of you, and it's like it didn't but it, it didn't, didn't build sense. the world, but I'm like, I want to know more about that. Yeah. You know, like like why is like suddenly being cut off from all like you know government assistance and like you know basically you're left on your own convinces everybody to be like you know what we need matching outfits and roller skates right and not even just matching outfits matching like puffy outfits like there there has to be a gang of seamstresses out there that we don't know like you know called the sewers or something that make all these outfits for everybody that's in the sequel that's a, yeah I'll watch <laughs> watch, watch I'll, we'll find out that Escape from the Bronx is actually like it answers all the questions we had <laughs> and it will be the movie that we needed from the first one no but like so like Trash uh, he takes a harpoon which again that also made me think of like you know uh, like, Orca. like like Orca yeah no Moby Dick or whatever like the yeah. whole thing he hits uh, Hammer at distance and, and drags him down to the, I'm like, oh, he's dead, right? But then he's still kind of alive, and then Trash gets on his motorcycle and then like takes off out of this compound, and I'm like, oh, he's dragging this guy behind him. There's going to be kind of like the savage finish credits. Like it stops like mid driving, and if like he's in the right corner driving towards the camera, and the movie literally stops, and That's there's my credits. Favorite thing about it is that like it's. <laughs> 
it's almost like if you're watching a 70s TV show or 80s sitcom and they always like freeze frame on like a it's happy a, moment. Yeah, That's how this movie ends, but it's, it's with a guy being dragged behind a motorcycle with a harpoon through him. And that's it. That's your movie, right? Like, uh, it's just that's how the movie ends. I I don't know. Like, it was just um. I I really loved the fact that it ended that way. I don't know why, because it was just so <laughs> so in keeping with the rest of the film. I guess that it was so bizarre. I almost but... just feel like they're just like, hey, we we where's the rest of the script at? It's like, <laughs> oh, I, I left it on the plane to Italy. Oh, uh, well, the movie's done now. Like, yeah. that just feels like that's it. It feels like that's where we're at with that. So, um. Did I have as much fun with this as I did Hands of Steel? No. Were there moments of pure, like, I, I really wish whatever they're bottling up in this scene, they could do the rest of the movie? Absolutely. Like, there was something here that could have been magnificent. Yeah. But there's just so much downtime. And there's some it, really long yeah. points throughout the film where you're just like, get on with it already. Yeah. And it's just, and so, and so when you get to the last nine minutes of the film, and like Fred Williamson, like they've they've won, and they like, and also by the way, I just want to point out that the ogre Fred Williamson, his his pad that he has, like his layout, where when you see him like dictating what happens next, it's like he's like give the gas to these people, give the electronics components to these people, and give the food to these people because you know they are are like that was like I'm a good king or whatever he says. Yeah. It's like damn straight, but it's like everyone's like wearing nice silk shirts and there's a guy wearing kind of weird blue face playing bongos. And it was like, there was like this whole, like, it was this weird, like, um, it, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, wow, they're all, they all clean up really well in this like anarchy state. I don't know. It's like, they all look like they smell really nice. Like it is. And then, and then his right hand woman, like his, like she was, ba- it seemed like, you know, at first it would, you almost thought she was like a, a toss off female character, but it's like, no, she was there fighting with all of them and going off on her own, beating people up, killing people, taking the whip that she had, strangling people, stabbing them with her finger knives. Like that was kind of badass. Yeah, that was. Yeah. It's, but then it's like, you get to the last nine minutes of the film. It's like, well, what's going on? Now? Oh, the police are coming. It's like, this is, this should be the third act of the film, not the last nine minutes. Yeah. You know? So it was. There, there, there's a skeleton there, and there's an absurdity there that I truly enjoy. It's well, just that there was just so much in between that nothing happened that was frustrating. And we mentioned the boot knife, but I just want to point out that like the reason the boot knife is brought out is because uh, there's a character who is going to be shot, um, and then the gun doesn't fire, and he's like, "Well, I guess this isn't my day. It isn't your day, or whatever." And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't walk away. Nope. He just stands there like an idiot. And then the guy's like, "Okay, I'm just going to stab you with my boot knife instead." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so like, yeah. Well, the character of Hot Dog and his whole reason in the movie was just like, yeah. you got the feeling that Hammer had influence over him for something. And for for Hot Dog, for someone not having money and always being in a dire situation, he had a really, really nice rig, like an yeah. actual like semi truck driving it around, just, you know, whatever. And it's like, also, you can't really hide that vehicle because it, it was just, <laughs> had like a nice bright paint job on it. It's like, well, I don't know. But, but I just feel like if somebody's going to shoot it, you know, is going to shoot you with a gun and it doesn't fire, you just get the hell out of there. You don't yeah. stand there and well, be like... He knew that he handed him a gun with blanks in it because yeah. he was trying to double cross him as well. But still, get out of no, there. No, but he knows the gun's not going to work. So it's like, you should you should maybe close the distance and like, you know, because he thinks he's going to shoot, you know, kill you. That's your time to, you know, you, you have the element of, of surprise because he does not know that he can't kill you. Yeah. Yeah, but then boot knife, you know, to the gut. That's it. 
So yeah. just a, a bizarre tactic. But I like opinion. that Trash had the one single elbow spike on. Like it's like why not two? Because yeah. he would use it. Like some of the fight choreography in this isn't bad at times. Like there's some decent moments. And like how he always had the finisher putting like his elbow in somebody's gut. The elbow, the elbow spike. It's like okay, that's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. And there was some stuff earlier against um, in the very first fight of them versus the zombies. So the guys were roller skates. Uh, it was in slow motion that actually was very reminiscent of the warriors. That wasn't bad. Like, and like, dude, um, I don't know how you watch this. I watched this on Amazon. It was like $3 to rent HD. Like it, like the, the version of this is very clean. It popped. Like there was some nice, uh, it looked for what it was. It looked beautiful, you know, like for its, its uh, resolution and everything. I thought it was on, I thought I watched it on prime. Yeah. Uh, I, I paid, Maybe it's available in Prime. I was logged into my Amazon account, not my wife's. So maybe I paid three dollars. I, I, I didn't pay anything to watch it. Well, and I thief, thought I watched it. No, no, you probably watched it like the I'm same Prime. way I did. Yeah, I watched it on Amazon. Just rented it, so I paid money. So I supported. I supported <laughs> Bronx Warriors. Um, you know, because in 1990, three dollars goes a long way. Because I, I feel like uh, both its sequels were on there as well. Oh, well, I'm going to check tonight, and I, 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 I really. I'm going to try watching Escape from the Bronx just to see where we're at with that. I don't have any hope of finishing it. Maybe you should maybe. write that up for the blog. Maybe you should watch it and then... <laughs> yeah, you know what? Maybe. Maybe I'll find that because then it, there has to be some gifts in there. It'll probably be worth like posting, right? Yeah, so, But I... I See that's the problem. I, like I have Netflix, I have Hulu, I have Amazon Prime. I can't you probably what I no. It if on, you didn't pay so. money for it, you probably watched it on Prime through your membership. Yeah, I was lazy and was like, I didn't ask my wife for her login. I'm like, I'll pay three dollars. You know, like I paid. What was it? I paid five for Shocking Dark or whatever it was to buy it. Yeah, like, so three dollars. I I could. I'm okay with that. So anyway, uh, I did pay three dollars to watch Condor Man. <laughs> and the pain is still there all right so um did you how did, did you have anything else about uh 1990 the brox warriors did, like did you overall was it worth watching it yeah i would okay. say so i mean it's definitely a group watch um yeah. oh and fred, fred williamson really hit that horse at the end did you remember like there's the guy on the horseback running right by and he fred williamson just takes a swing at that horse and causes it to fall down i'm pretty sure he hit that horse so, I thought you uncovered that in research, but I no, no. I'm just saying, watching that scene, it's like, yeah. I think he hit that horse. Well, it was the uh, the early '80s. It was a different time. Yeah. So anyway, that's yeah. So it, it, I cut you off. Like so. Yeah. No, you had I, okay. You had fun with it. Yeah, I had fun with it. I mean, it's it's not hands of steel, but <laughs> what is? Uh, but I would definitely like honestly like I would probably throw this in a lineup like that. Like you know, um, yeah, with a group of people that don't yeah. know what they're about to watch. That'd be a lot of fun because then you could also have some fun conversation in the downtimes of the film. So yeah. like you could get up and get a beer and not even you would not miss anything. So yeah. Um, all right. So to answer some questions here on a scale of one to ten, how close did it adhere to the film it wanted to knock off? We're talking about Escape from New York. The title sequence, you know, like it's like the the government's given up on a borough of New York. Yeah, that's there. There's some some gangs fighting. Um, uh, police state type of thing going on. Um, I feel like it's about a five. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's yeah. halfway there. It's halfway there. The other half is warriors, straight up. So, well, the other thing too that I was reading was is that some people uh, feel it's a rip off of Mad Max or The Road Warrior, and I'm like, I don't see that in that at all. No, I don't really see that either. No, but, but yeah, so I'd say yeah, five, five's fair. Uh, on a, on the Ator scale, was it better or worse than Ator? Ooh, I'm gonna say it was 
better, but not by much. <laughs> only because <laughs> only because the, the the crazy moments were just a little crazier than Ator. Okay, so, that's fair. Yeah, I just I, Ator was just because it's a fantasy setting; it's just weird all the way through. And this, yeah. I mean, it's still weird. Yeah, I yeah, it's better than Ator. I mean, again, not by much. Um, you know, there there could have been a, band, a, a gang called the Fighting Eagles in this. We don't know. Um, <laughs> would you recommend this film to anybody else? Yeah, like all to of me, our knockoff the, films. Uh, yes, yeah, I'd recommend it to you. That's it. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, same thing. I just. I feel like um, there are certain ones we've seen that you could probably show to anybody, and they'd be like, "Oh, this is fun." This this one's getting a little closer out, like a little deeper waters, you know. You know, when I think about it, though, um, you know, Topher Grace, uh, the actor, has become somewhat of an editor. Like he had edited together the Star Wars prequels into one film, and he had edited, um, uh, I think it was the Hobbit films. Yeah, recently. the first, the the, the 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 three prequel yeah. Hobbit films. We're gonna call them. Um, I feel like we need to hire him to like. I feel like you could make like a solid half hour, forty minute movie out of this. Oh yeah, that's what I was you, thinking about that too. Like, uh, if he's Conan, just kind of do some surgical editing. You could keep the fun and ridiculous, yeah, and still have a complete film. Like you know, uh, makes me wonder what if the second film, if you could just mash them together into one, like you know, <laughs> film. You know, uh, maybe who knows? Yeah, I just there's just. There's just enough downtime in this that I can't just be over the moon about it. But I had a lot of fun watching it, and the, and the extreme moments are are awesome. Nobody rips a granite countertop off and throws it. <laughs> no, no one does. But there are there are bike knives, there are roller skating gangs, there are guys in the background swinging nunchucks for no reason. <laughs> there's there, dance fighting. There's Fred Williamson who just he knows the movie he is in. And, yeah. and I love I love Fred Williamson's fight style of just like the sudden like like chops and jabs that are just like you know I really believe he can knock these people down but some of the ways he's hitting them and they're flying all over the place like it's like it's so it's, and then his, his Austin Power is like judo chop and and he his his end of how he goes out is the most badass way to go <laughs> out like I'm not going to even give that away you got to watch the movie it's like he went out on his terms and it yeah. was cool, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. That's going to do it for uh 1990, the Bronx warriors. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, it is what it is. And I, it was, it was, it was worth watching. It was fun, but just, you know, just be aware of what's going on in terms of it's not the, the, um, not not the fastest of movies of being like an hour and a half long. So yeah. whatever. So anyway, uh, that's going to do it for that. Uh, so next week, um, and we'll get to some housekeeping in a second. We're going to be talking about Venom, uh, the character, um, as opposed to what the substance. I don't know uh, because the we're Venom talking all oh, about Snake Venom next yeah, week. Yeah, we're going to take turns getting bit uses. by bugs. Now, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the character of Venom because the movie's coming out. We're going to do a little bit of history and then like some some hopes. Uh, and some reactions to the rating of the film. I think yes. we'll talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, that'll be next week. Um, um, I don't. I don't have much to add about that except for I. Th- I think that like typically we do like if there's a comic book movie coming out, we maybe do a deep dive on like one of the comics that inspire it. But I think we kind of want to examine the character as a whole and maybe even talk about is is this the character that you really want to make a standalone movie 
on its own. You in, know? in the in, in the the presence uh, in the present existence, the way that they've been setting right. everything up. Yes, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we'll talk so. about that next week. Uh, so yeah, uh, till then, uh, you guys can find us on Facebook Invasion Podcast. We have our, our blog invasionthepodcast.com. You can go and read about Message from Space if you want to find my thoughts about that. Because I mentioned uh, Vic Morrow as well, and that. Um, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Music, uh, Podbean, wherever you find your podcast. If you could rate and review us, that'd be great. Steve, how can people find you additionally? You can head to the Saturday Night Slasher.com. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the Saturday Night Slasher. Um, and you'll see all kinds of cool photos from this past weekend. So Yeah. So uh, posting this on September 20th, I just want to mention on the 21st. So if you guys listen to this day, it comes out and you're in the Cleveland area on the 21st, Friday. So I want to say uh, it starts at like six and goes to eight. Uh, Carol John's comics on the west side and um, uh, West Camps Park Corner. Camps Corner, West Park. Yeah, Camps Corner. Uh, they're going to be having uh, Marvel. Uh, well, he's he's worked with Marvel before. Artist and writer Cena Grace. Uh, he will be there uh, signing books. If you get there early enough, you'll be given a copy because he's written uh, the more recent Iceman run. I want to mention him because the fact from aside from the fact that he writes and draws comics, which is cool, he was the illustrator on uh, Little Depressed Boy. When we talked to Sean Steven, Sean Steven Struble about a year and a half ago, that's his artist. So I think it'd be kind of cool to go meet the guy that drew the book because we talked to the guy that wrote the book. So that'd be kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah, go check it out. And Carol Johnson's a good place to go to anyway, regardless if you're familiar with the guy's work or not. Go buy some cool comics. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe Steve will be in the parking lot with copies of the Saturday Slash try to sell them. <laughs> <laughs> tried tried to shield like you guys you guys like comic books? I got a comic book. Suddenly I'm like some sort of like drug dealer. Yeah, got like, like a long. No, coat you're on. just slowly driving by in front of the entrance to Carol and John's with your own comic book. Like you're trying to trick people into thinking they're walking into the store <laughs> at your car. No. Um but yeah. Anyway, uh yeah, that's gonna do it for us this week. Uh have a safe week. Um I guess don't go don't go to New York and the 90s future. Yeah, definitely stay out of the 90s future in New York. Shoot a cop with a gun. The Big Apple is plenty of fun. Stab a priest with a And you'll spend your vacation in New York. Call a bank. This is hell.